Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Body Wrappers, Angela Luzio is delighted to sponsor this episode of Conversations on Dance. Body Wrappers, Angela Luzio is known for its fine, total stretch tights and Angela Luzio shoes. Tyler Peck, principal dancer with New York City Ballet, is its spokesperson and designer of Tyler Peck Designs for Premiere. Tyler's beautiful, original designs fit perfectly, move well with the body, won't ride up in the back, and are ideal for class, rehearsal, and performance. Body Wrappers makes additional apparel for all disciplines, and significant to dance teachers this time of year, Body Wrappers Performance Wear Remix for competition and recital, consisting of various components that can be mixed and matched to create a unique costume you won't see anywhere else, like the one featured in Body Wrappers' ad. You may view all the products at bodywrappers.com or to purchase Body Wrappers performance wear remix items, go to your favorite local dance retailer shop or online store. To view and buy the entire collection of Tyler Peck designs, go to dancewearcorner.com. I'm Rebecca King-Ferraro. And I'm Michael Breeden. And you're listening to Conversations on Dance. This week, we are joined by New York City Ballet resident choreographer Justin Peck in a live Meet the Artist event before the opening night of the Unbound Festival at the San Francisco Ballet. Stay tuned this week for more from the festival. Hi, everybody, and welcome to opening night of Unbound and opening night of Unbound A. Um, I am so pleased that our Meet the Artist talk tonight is going to feature the hosts of the Conversations on Dance podcast, Rebecca Ferraro and Michael Breeden, in conversation with choreographer Justin Peck. They're going to do a great job, and you're going to hear this all on a podcast in a couple short days. So check that out. Check out San Francisco Ballet's podcasts and enjoy this interview and the show tonight. Thanks for being here. Hi. Hi, everyone. We're so happy to be here. And thank you to San Francisco Ballet for having us this evening. This is going to be a wonderful event uh, this evening and for the next 
few weeks. So um, the energy in the building is just palpable. All of the dancers and choreographers that we've been talking to today are just so excited. So we're looking forward to it as well. It's such a, uh, an unprecedented endeavor for this company uh, to be putting out 12 new works over the course of 17 days. So um, I'm sure that you are all just as every, every bit as excited as we are to see what, uh, what, what is revealed throughout the course of these next few weeks. Um, so Justin, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's really- Thanks for having me. <laughs> Hi guys. <laughs> Uh, your work is on the program tonight. Uh, you're closing out, so you've got a, a few more hours to stress out. Yeah, <laughs> but I get to enjoy the other two pieces before, right. so that'll be nice. I haven't actually seen anything of the other two choreographers' work, so I'm, I'm excited to see what they've done as well. So uh, let's just start and talk a little bit about your beginnings as a choreographer. Uh, when did you first have an idea that you had an interest in choreography, and what were some of your initial experimentations in the art like? Well, I guess I first became interested in choreography uh, when I first moved to New York City as a student at the School of American Ballet. Um, I went to the ballet quite often and saw the works primarily by George Balanchine and Jerome Robbins, and it was the first exposure to, uh, to work that was purely about the interrelation between music and movement. And that was just uh, something new uh, that I had never seen before. And, um, and uh, I realized that choreography could be about just that. And so that's where the first seed was planted. And then, um, and then I joined New York City Ballet a few years later. And uh, a couple years after that, I just felt this itch to explore this outlet. And, um, and while I was actually studying, at Columbia University, I took a dance criticism course just as an elective, and my professor there, her name's uh, Mindy Aloff, uh, she, at the end of the semester, out of the blue, she told me that she felt like I would have had an interesting mind for choreography, and so I took it as a sign, and I made my first piece shortly after that, and just haven't stopped since. So you began uh, choreographing in 2009 at a fairly young age. Were you 20, 21? I think I was 20. Okay. Yeah. So right at the beginning <laughs> we'll of your career. Check. <laughs> okay. Um, and shortly thereafter, you were um, commissioned for two major works with New York City Ballet. Um, did you find this time to be overwhelming or terrifying? I would. <laughs> um, or well, did you find it just like you wanted to live in the moment and enjoy it? Well, I there was a period between those two things where I spent a few years at the New York Choreographic Institute, uh, which is an affiliate of New York City Ballet, and it's kind of like a laboratory where choreographers can go, and uh, they're provided with studio space and talented dancers and time to just go through the process of making something. And so I did a few sessions there where I was able to um, to make a few pieces and get some experience before showing any work publicly. Um, so that was kind of like my training ground. So I built up a little bit of confidence and experience through that. And then um, after several sessions, I was commissioned to create something for New York City Ballet. And of course, I was really ecstatic to do that. Um, but the way that these companies work, they plan their season so far in advance that I remember being offered this uh, wonderful commission um, and the director was like, okay, but you're gonna have to wait two years to do it. Um, so it was this like long grace period and, um, and I just, 
I spent a lot of time thinking about what I wanted to create, and so in a way, it was a very focused time for me. So now your work is being done all over the globe, and you have your duties as resident choreographer at New York City Ballet, but you are in high demand elsewhere. So about how many ballets do you think you're working on at any given moment? Well, each year I try to just only commit to one commission outside of New York City Ballet. So it fluctuates a little bit year to year. Sometimes it'll be zero, sometimes it'll be two. Um, but right now my primary focus is the, the output at New York City Ballet. So there I usually do between two and three ballets a year. Um, they, they have, they, they perform so frequently and they have such a vast repertoire that um, the structure allows for more work to be created there. So it's a very kind of fast paced and exciting uh, environment. Right. I was wondering, you know, uh, dance is such a unique, uh, well, choreography is such a unique art form in that the material, you know, that you're working with is humans. We're, we're people that have to work under certain conditions at a certain time. Uh, a piece of paper isn't going to complain if you want to write on it at 4.30 a.m. Dancers definitely will. <laughs> so do you find, um, in terms of inspiration, that, it, you know, it has to come to you from 10 to 5 during the day? Are there ever points where you're just like, God, I wish I could have done this at last night at midnight when I was really getting going in my head. I mean, I'm, I'm typically a morning person, so for me the challenging moments are when I have all day off and then I have to re rehearse from 5 to 7 p.m. <laughs> and it's like, and the dancers are tired at that point. And so you're right, it's a little bit out of my control and it has to do with so many factors and so many people and it's such a collaborative art form. Um, so you have to kind of work with those conditions and yeah, I guess that's part of the challenge of making dances, but I've grown accustomed to it. So you're really well known for the intricate and beautiful patterns that you create on stage with a large cast of dancers. Sometimes it seems like choreographers maybe shy away from that because it can be really overwhelming. So what is it about these big groups that really makes you tick and what process do you go through in order to plan out all of these patterns and intricate things on stage? Yeah, well I guess there were two things going on that led me to explore uh, movement that involved large groups. One of them was when I was a student and a young dancer in New York City Ballet, I just noticed that a lot of new ballets being commissioned for the company uh, were by choreographers creating for smaller groups. And I just questioned why that always became the trend during that time. And, um, and also I was just really drawn to um, these epic works by, especially the ones by George Balanchine, where he was just, he's such, so masterful at using uh, dancers and space uh, and in works like Symphony in C or Symphony in Three Movements, uh, Stravinsky Violin Concerto, I think you guys see some of those here too. Um, I just remembered going to see those a lot as a student and as a young professional and watching from all different angles. I remember seeing a lot of those from like the upper tiers and getting that bird's eye view of the works and also trying to watch them really close up. So I would like watch one act from up there and then look into the front row and see if there was an empty seat and then like sneak down for the second act. Um, and that was, it was just nice to get so much um, perspective on these works and, um, and they're great about uh, allowing the students to come see as many performances as they want. So that was a really, um, 
important time, I think, in my development and, uh, and an, an important phase in, for my own inspiration. And so, uh, so I guess it was partially a backlash to all the new work being made when I was younger, and then also inspiration from George Balanchine and Jerome Robbins and the larger works that they were making. When you're planning things out, are you in your mind, are you watching it from up high in a balcony or are you watching it more from the orchestra? Um, it's definitely like a bird's eye view if I'm working on something very structural and something that involves a large core of dancers. Um, sometimes I'll do even little sketches or just like really crude like football plays uh, on paper <laughs> in like a notebook. And it's just to get a sense of how bodies move through space. Um, and I, yeah, I just always felt like it's important to have that kind of starting point before going into the studio with the dancers because the time is so limited with the dancers um, that there isn't like a moment to waste. So it's, you know, as long as you have a plan, then departing from that is much easier than coming in and not knowing what you're gonna do, so. Yeah, I remember uh, the first time I ever asked you this question, you said it was like uh, trying to build a house without a foundation. You gotta have that first before you start working on the embellishment. Yeah, it's like uh, yeah, when, when a building is constructed, there's a blueprint to how that building's gonna get made. And so similarly with a lot of my work, if it involves large groups, I have that sort of blueprints set in place. Um, I mean, the only difference is my work with you know, making a ballet, there's more flexibility in the moment to depart from that. I think um, when they're constructing a building, it's sort of <laughs> set. I don't think they're improvising <laughs> in the moment. So, so uh, let's talk a little bit about your relationship with music as a choreographer. Um, you have a, a long-standing, fruitful relationship with Fionn Stevens as a composer, um, who actually uh, you collaborated with for your first ballet, the San Francisco Ballet. Um, but you're very open to a wide variety of musical styles. You have, you've uh, choreographed to Stravinsky and Frank and also Dan Deacon. So how do you pick out what you think is suitable for dance? What, what, what inspires you specifically? It's a very personal thing for me. It's, uh, it's all about what inspires me as a choreographer and I have, um, you know, there, I don't. I never feel limited to any sort of genre or style of music, and I also really enjoy the process of collaborating on new, new music with people like Sufjan Stevens, and um, and so that's always, uh, you know, I, I tend to switch back and forth between um, those firsthand collaborations and then working with existing music as well. Um, so the piece tonight is actually a kind of a departure for me because it's um, it's the closest thing I've come to choreographing like popular music. So it's uh, by a band named M83. Um, and so it's a little bit of a risk, but I'm excited for this, for this next step. There's, a, there's been a history of choreographers working with more popular music for the concert stage. And mm -hmm. so I think it uh, feels like a, an important phase. Right. We talked to several of other um, choreographers from the festival earlier today, and they said that part of what Helgi was really aiming for in this festival was um, risk-taking. So did you take that and kind of 
Yeah, I mean, again, it was like a really personal choice for me to use this music. I remember the last time I was here in San Francisco working on In the Countenance of Kings and spending a lot of time wandering around the city and just taking in the light and sort of the, the, the beauty and the expanse of, uh, of the setting and listening to this particular uh, song cycle, uh, which is titled Hurry Up, We're Dreaming, uh, also the name of the ballet. And it just became this very personal experience for me that, that was sort of wrapped up in my process here working with San Francisco Ballet. And so I just felt like it would be a great uh, basis for creating a new work with these wonderful artists here. So did the music come first then for this? You Maybe last time you were in San Francisco, you chose this piece of music for this particular festival? I think I started to, I started to think about using this music two years ago when I was here and just uh, envisioning certain dancers in, um, in the movement uh, or in the potential movement. And, and so, and then when I received the second commission, I went back and forth between a few ideas and ultimately landed here because I felt like it would be the most personal for me. But, you know, the music, it's, it's interesting because the, com the composer or the, the band leader wrote this song cycle when he, uh, he's, he's a uh, French, musician and he moved from France to California and he was so inspired by the expansiveness of, uh, of the state and of uh, the nature here. And um, so that was a big part of, of this music. And it was also, um, he was very much inspired by how we uh, dream as human beings in different phases of our lives. So, um, so the first version of that would be how we dream as children, um, and then how we dream as coming-of-age adults, and then finally how we dream as fully matured adults. So, um, so those various phases are explored through the movement of this piece. So this piece tonight, um, you have put your ballet dancers in sneakers, and it's not your first time doing that. Um, so what is it about putting your dancers in sneakers that changes the dynamic of what they're doing, and how does it change your approach to the piece? I think I first became interested in choreographing uh, in sneakers uh, when I first danced some of these Jerome Robbins sneaker ballets. So there's uh, one piece in particular that I've danced quite a bit called uh, New York Export Opus Jazz, uh, which is an old piece, um, but we still perform it at New York City Ballet. And there was something very liberating and very different about being on stage dancing in sneakers. It was, um, it kind of widens your center of gravity and it allows for greater risk taking um, in the moment on stage. And I really liked that feeling as a dancer. And so I wanted to take that and apply it to my own choreographic process. And it's, it's a, a very American style, I think, too, which, um, which I was excited about. And so I, I've done a few sneaker ballets and I feel like it's a form that I continue to explore and I uh, continue to be interested in. And, um, and it's the first kind of sneaker work I've done for this company. So yeah, we'll see. You've also even put ballets that are not in sneakers into sneakers for promotional videos. Yeah, that's more of a practical thing. <laughs> it's hard to dance in on point, like on concrete, on the sidewalk or something. So yeah. So uh, now still very early into your career, you've already made over 30 works. And uh, though some might look at it like, you know, Justin is this young um, rising choreographer, uh, you've still experienced 
immense personal and artistic growth over the course of nearly 10 years. So do you ever look back on those early works and think, God, what was I thinking? Or I want to fix this or that? Yeah, you know, I, I definitely feel that way towards the, the very early works. Um, it's interesting because I, I tried to restrain myself from changing anything. Uh, because I felt like, you know, similarly to a painter finishing a painting and that's the painting and 10 years later it's still the painting. I wanted to be true to, um, to my own creative process at that time. But it's really hard to not change things because <laughs> it's like a living, breathing experience to see a ballet dance by, um, by a company or by certain dancers of today. And so one of those works has been a ballet called You're the Rabbit, which was kind of my first major piece I created for New York City Ballet. Um, and yeah, it's been danced by a couple of other companies and it actually, it's, it's being performed by New York City Ballet this spring as well. And it's sort of hard for me to watch now. I don't know. It's silly because it's, <laughs> yeah, I think it's a, it's a perfect ballet. ballet. Don't yeah. touch it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, um, do you ever think that you might uh, alter a work for someone's abilities? Like, if, if there were a new dancer that you were putting into Rabbit, would you ever say, she's not like Ashley Bowder, who was the original cast. I want to alter this for her and kind yeah. of have options. Yeah, I mean, we I've done that a couple times where we've created like a slightly different uh, variation or solo for a dancer that works uh, better towards their strengths. and. Um, that's kind of been a practice uh, that was at, at least done or maybe started by Balanchine or he was known for doing that a lot with uh, creating different versions of variations or you know a different Chinese variation in Nutcracker for a certain dancer and that sort of thing so um, so that's sort of my my guide with that. Well I know that we can't be the only ones with questions for Justin so is there any hands are going up how about right here? Yeah. Uh, the question is, are these special dance sneakers or are we just in plain old sneakers? They're just plain old sneakers. Heads, <laughs> you can order them on, you know, Zappos, find them at your local Payless. No, they're, yeah, they're very like pedestrian sneakers. And actually what they do um, is they put a thin layer of suede on the bottom of them so that the dancers can turn so that they don't get stuck um, on the Marley. So that's like an important detail. The, the question is, uh, this woman in the audience says that she had taps on the end of her toe shoes and it was a, a, something called toe tap. And it's not seen that frequently anymore. Would Justin ever want to incorporate that into one of his well, ballets? It's a, it's a long career, maybe one day. You have yeah. had tap in your ballet, so. <laughs> I or, do, yeah, it's a good idea. <laughs> All right, right here. Can, can we talk about, a little bit about uh, gender roles within ballet and if they're evolving from uh, sort of traditional views? Yeah, I think uh, they're definitely evolving, um, especially when you put something, when you put a piece in, in uh, sneakers where you get rid of the toe shoes, which kind of differentiates the men from the women, uh, creates a level playing field, and, um, and you can experiment quite a bit with that. Uh, I did that a lot, actually, with New York City Ballet. I created a, a piece in sneakers called The Times Are Racing, and that was actually really fun because uh, I created this, um, this solo role for a colleague of mine named Robert Fairchild, and the next season it was performed uh, to a T by 
uh, a wonderful soloist named Ashley Isaacs. Um, we also had a male-female uh, central duet in that piece that was then performed by a male-male cast. And so that was, um, that was really exciting to explore, and I think it actually meant a lot to, to both the dancers and the audience um, uh, coming to see that piece live. And um, so I think, yeah, I think that's definitely something that a lot of choreographers today are interested in exploring and pushing. And, um, and I think actually Miles Thatcher, who is on another program, uh, that, was a, that was a huge focus for that piece that, um, that he worked on. So you'll see a, uh, quite a bit of that during this festival, I think. Yeah, Miles' ballet goes tomorrow night, and we are talking to him for the Meet the Artist then. Right here. How long did Justin get to work with the company on this upcoming premiere? So I worked with them for about five weeks total for this commission. Um, so I can't, actually came in August, last August, to do the initial uh, development for the piece. I worked um, uh, for a little over three weeks with them then, and uh, we created the bulk of this work and then I came back and I have a wonderful ballet master named Felipe Diaz who takes great care of the choreography and um, and when I returned it was like super organized and easy to work with and I was able to just like put the finishing touches on or make a few tweaks and um, and work with the designers on the costumes and the lighting and all that so I think we have a question way back here yes so the question is about um, what he has in his mind before he goes into the studio. Is it just a blank palette? And he also wants to hear about your Broadway work, Carousel. Um, yeah, so to answer your first question, I usually come into the studio with a few uh, thematic movement phrases that I've developed myself uh, on my own body and that I've recorded using video. Um, and I'll work with the dancers on those sequences, and those will act as um, as uh, kind of building blocks to develop an entire work from. Uh, so that's kind of how I say ahead of the game before I um, get into the studio with the dancers. Um, in regards to the uh, into uh, in regards to Carousel, um, I think I worked for probably like 22 weeks on that, which is much longer. Uh, and a much more extensive process than creating a new ballet. Um, and that involved um, six weeks of dance pre-production where I worked with maybe 20 dancers in the studio just to explore and develop the language of the show and storytelling of the show. And then uh, four weeks of a lab that involved the entire cast and the, the principal actors that were involved. Um, and then further rehearsal in the studio, three weeks of tech time, and uh, six weeks of previews, where we continued to tweak the show in front of a live audience. So it's a really thorough process, but, um, and, and I think very different in a lot of ways from the ballet world, but, um, but something I, I really enjoyed, and, um, and I'd be excited to do again someday. We have time for one more. Could we talk a little bit about casting? How do you cast a ballet? Um, <clears throat> well, this fe festival was interesting because there's 12 choreographers, and 
a finite number of dancers. So, um, so actually what they did quite brilliantly is they split up the company into three groups. Um, and amongst those groups, we were able to choose which dancers we wanted to work with or which dancers we wanted to focus on or put into the leading roles and all that. Um, but it's, um, it was a necessary step, I think, uh, for us to pull off such an unprecedented uh, uh, festival of new work. And the good thing is that this company is really incredible and there's so many talented dancers here and I don't think any of us had any sort of issues with that. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think for, in general, just like for casting a ballet, uh, everyone has their own taste. Um, for me, I'm always looking for musical dancers, um, dancers who will uh, bring something to the creative process in the studio, uh, dancers who have a fair amount of athleticism and um, coordination in their bodies and, um, and uh, just also performance quality on stage. So. All right, well, thank you, Justin, and thanks to all of you for coming out. Please enjoy this evening. We hope you enjoy the show. Thank guys, you, guys. Enjoy, thank guys. You. Stay tuned to more from San Francisco Ballet's Unbound Festival. Subscribe now on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode has been sponsored by San Francisco Ballet. We want to take a moment to talk to you about our sponsor, Studio Headphones. Studio wants to revolutionize the way people see headphones, not just as a tech device, but also as an accessory. In the current headphone market, it seems that you can choose between one of two things, tech or style. But Studio is bridging that gap by bringing you high quality sound that matches the quality of even the highest rated headphones on the market with a fashionable and modern look for a fraction of the cost. Michael and I have both been loving our sleek, tray-style studio headphones. They are sleek and lightweight and have sound transparency that allows you to hear traffic and conversations around you, making these headphones perfect if you live in a busy city. The Bluetooth technology makes these headphones wonderful to use when you are warming up for class or performances so you won't get tangled up in wires. So don't wait. Start listening to Conversations on Dance today with studio headphones. We are happy to be able to offer our listeners 15% off any purchase when you use promo code DANCE at checkout. Go to studio.com, that's S-U-D-I-O.com, or click the link in the description of this episode on iTunes. Now, let's get back to it. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.